Hello, and welcome back. You are joining us for Opportunity Thrives. I'm Jean Sharp, and on this show, we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's secondary students. Through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers, we want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can impact positive, lasting change. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions. Please click in the podcast notes to leave us a review, provide your input, or send us your questions. You can also reach out to us at info at opportunitythrives.com. Today, we welcome back John Watson, the CEO of the Evergreen Education Group and the founder of the Digital Learning Collaborative. Welcome, John. Hello, Jean. Thanks for having me on. As we begin today, would you tell our listeners about your background in educational technology and the work you do with the Evergreen Education Group and the Digital Learning Collaborative? Sure. I was chatting with one of our colleagues not too long ago, somebody who's been in our space for 25 years or so. And she said to me, you know, I think the folks in our digital learning space either loved school when they were going through it or hated it. And I said, I was in the hated school category, at least at the high school level. I had found when I was in high school that I found it stifling. I found it not very engaging. And for that and some other reasons, I got into different types of alternative education after graduating from college and coming out of grad school. Experiential education, I was working in field science education in the mountains of Colorado. I was leading bike trips in New England, led a service trip of students down to Belize. And so even though now I'm working in education technology, to me, the framing is less about education technology, and it's more about finding new ways to reach students that break down barriers of time and space. And that's what we're doing through our work within Evergreen, with all the districts and schools that we work with, and with the Digital Learning Collaborative as well. Excellent. So since we last spoke, John, the Digital Learning Collaborative continues to grow. How are you getting the word out about the organization? The honest answer is I wish I knew. I just know that we seem to be getting more and more attention recently. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that as of about a year ago, online learning, blended learning, hybrid, digital learning, were still more or less a niche. There were certainly hundreds of thousands of students in full-time online schools, millions of students taking online courses. The large majority, if not essentially all school districts, had some form or flavor of digital learning. But of course, post-pandemic, that turned into 100% of schools. And so the work that we've been doing and you've been doing as well for so many years certainly became all of a sudden front and center for essentially every school, every teacher, every educator in the country. And I think there's been this discovery that the work that not only the Digital Learning Collaborative, our members, the folks who come to our conference, this is work that they've been doing for years, if not decades. And so there's a tremendous wealth of experience there. And a lot of folks are looking to tap into that. Absolutely. Membership in the Digital Learning Collaborative, John, now includes a growing number of state affiliates. How is the DLC offering programming to meet their needs? We see the state affiliates as filling a really critical role within the Digital Collaborative. I suspect that most of the listeners to this podcast recognize that in the U.S., education is driven at the state and local level. And within the DLC, we really seek to 
raise the voices of our members. And that really means having that state and local viewpoint. We have that local viewpoint from the individual schools and districts that are members, but we've really reached out to state affiliate organizations that are able to represent what's happening at a state level, to be able to talk about what are the specific contexts for each of those states, whether it's funding, whether it's policy, whether it's the state being more or less rural, whether it's different student demographics. We are in the early stages of creating state profiles for each of the 50 states that are going to be on the DLC website. Uh, If you may recall, in the old days when we used to publish the Keeping Pace reports, those had these state profiles, each of which was several pages, each of which captured what was happening at a high level within that state around digital learning. We're not looking to exactly recreate those Keeping Pace state profiles, but we're looking to recreate something similar to that so that each of the state affiliates is able to tell us and tell a national audience through the DLC what's happening, what's unique in each state. Excellent. During this COVID timeframe, the Digital Learning Collaborative has been providing resources to schools to support conversations and their implementations of digital learning. For example, the Digital Learning Discussions is a webinar series that brings together online and mainstream educators, policymakers, and so forth to explore key digital learning issues that apply to the work educators are doing. John, I'm curious, how have these conversations been received? They have been received incredibly well. And I think one of the main reasons for that, and you reference this in how you introduce this topic, we are bringing in a variety of educators. What we find in these discussions is that we want to bring in the folks who are doing the work on the ground, in districts, in schools, and to be able to both share what they're learning and learn from each other. When we've had these webinars, we've had very active attendees. So they're chatting, they're asking questions, they're commenting. And I said asking questions, but not just asking questions, but sharing their own experiences as well, which I think is so critical. This is really a founding concept behind both the Digital Learning Collaborative and the DLAC conference is that we don't see these as forums where we want to gather experts who are telling educators what to do. We see the educators who are out there as the experts, and we see them able to share what they're doing and learn from each other. Nobody has all the answers, but everybody I've ever experienced within the DLC or a DLAC has something to share, has something to offer. We've taken that approach within the webinars, and they're going very, very well. Excellent. And speaking of learning from each other, the DLC has also launched the Resilient Schools Project in conjunction with the Future of School a nonprofit organization to assist schools and districts with developing an ongoing resource to respond to instructional disruptions during the school year. Tell us about that cohort and that initiative. The Resilient Schools Project is a group of 11 districts that gather online every couple of weeks to share what is working, what's not working, what are their common challenges during the pandemic, during school closures, remote learning, hybrid learning, all those things that essentially every school in the country is facing. And it's a perfect example of what I referenced earlier. We have brought in some experts who have been really, really fantastic helping this group think through some issues. But at the same time, we spent a lot of time with them sharing what's happening in their districts. 
the discussion over the last couple of weeks has been around accelerated learning. How do we think about each school addressing the needs of each individual student? Some of those students have done very well during periods of remote learning. Some have not done as well. So every school, every district is thinking about how do we meet each student exactly where they are in their learning progression right now? How do we accelerate that going forward if we need to, whether that's summer programming, programming in the spring or the fall? How do we set up the data system so that we can evaluate where each student is individually? How do we think about the differences between elementary students where we're really focused on core areas, especially like math and literacy skills versus high school students where we may be thinking more in areas or issues like progress towards graduation, interest in college, those sorts of things, just to make sure that each district, each school is able to address each of those students' individual needs. What we hear from the RSP members is fascinating because they're all thinking about so many of these issues coming from a common place, coming up with solutions that have commonalities. They have some overlap, but they're also unique in each situation, unique in each of those solutions that they're bringing together for the students in their districts. That's an exciting project, John, and certainly the desire for educators to learn from their experiences as well as to learn from one another's is really a high priority for everyone right now. To that end, You are in the midst of planning for the third annual Digital Learning Annual Conference, and that's quite exciting as well. Tell us about the focus of the conference this year and how the plans for DLAC are taking shape. As you mentioned, this is going to be our third year. We launched DLAC in 2019. We had a bit over 500 people there. In 2020, we got it in just before the pandemic hit, grew by about 80% in terms of the number of attendees. And I think that interest, that growth happened for two reasons. First of all, there hasn't in recent years been a conference that focused on digital learning issues from a systems level, from a a school or a district or state level. That's what DLAC does with leaders at at all those different levels. The second thing is, and going to sound like I'm saying the same thing over and over, and in some ways I am, DLAC, again, is built around the idea of what sorts of networking, what sorts of conversations can we bring together, or I should say, can we facilitate as conference organizers to make sure that people are being able to share, to be able to learn from each other? Again, that's what people really want to do. Certainly, there's some sessions that are longer, that are a bit more sit and get, so we have those options too, but that's not what most people want most of the time. They want to be able to share. What do they want to be able to share right now? I think they want to be able to share the fact that this last year has been the most challenging year that any educator has faced in their lifetime. Probably for a lot of people, it's the most challenging year any of us have faced professionally, personally, or both. So we're anticipating focusing DLAC on what can we take from this past year and apply going forward. By June, if vaccines continue to roll out, if COVID cases continue to drop, I'm fairly optimistic that we're going to be in a place where it's going to feel like the bulk of the pandemic is behind us. I also think we're going to be in this really important point where everything that schools and districts were doing around remote learning, around hybrid learning, is still going to be front and center, very fresh in everyone's mind. So the key question is going to be, what do we take from that experience into the next school year? What can we build on that's going to be incredibly valuable? We know that a lot of students did not respond very well to remote learning, in part 
because schools didn't have time to plan. Teachers were thrown into teaching online, teaching remotely, teaching using a lot of synchronous video. Over time, a lot of teachers, a lot of schools started to bring in other instructional strategies. Some of the things that we hear from many of them is the extent to which they started to see some of their students responding very, very well. We've heard this from students and parents as well. In fact, we had some students on one of our recent webinars. So the idea, I think, going forward is we know that most students are going to want to return to something that looks like, quote unquote, traditional school. But there's more students now and more families who have experienced remote learning see the promise around online or blended or hybrid learning, they're asking for some of those opportunities going forward. And schools and districts are looking for ways that they can create more opportunities and more options for students. That's what they're looking to do in the 2021-22 school year and beyond. Absolutely. So, John, I'm curious, while most education and technology conferences have remained virtual since last spring, What contributed to your decision to offer a hybrid conference experience? Well, first of all, we originally planned DLAC 2021 to be in February. And going back to April of last year, it became pretty clear that February wasn't going to be a great option. So we shifted to June with the hope that the worst of the pandemic would be over by June. It does appear that there's reason to be optimistic that that will be the case, that people will be ready to be on site again by June, certainly keeping in mind that we're an education conference. And while not every state has yet prioritized teachers and school district staff, many of them are starting to. I know my hometown of Durango, Colorado, just held an event this past weekend for everybody in the district who got their first shots. And so we are optimistic that by June, there will be enough people who have had both their shots if they're doing one of the first two vaccines and will be able to be safely on site. Having said that, the venue capacity is typically a thousand people, but right now we're looking at that venue capacity being reduced to about 500 due to social distancing measures. And in fact, we are oversubscribed right now. We have a waiting list for folks being on site. So it seems like we're not the only ones who are optimistic that people will want to gather. We've got about 600 people interested in those 500 slots right now. And again, we're still taking registrations. We're still optimistic that as the situation on the ground improves, we may be able to add additional capacity. Well, John, actually, I think that's kind of a good problem to have because it certainly indicates the high level of interest and the relevancy of what DLAC offers. I hope it does. I also think perhaps in my last answer, I may have undersold the online component of DLAC as well, because we're really excited about this. First of all, our long-term goal or plan, I should say, is that we want to keep DLAC as a relatively small conference. We know that there's demand for more than the thousand people that we can fit in Austin in 2021, even if social distancing measures are lifted. We've already signed contracts for the next three years that double our capacity up to somewhere around 2,000, maybe a little bit higher. We also think that there may be demand for more than 2,000, but we like that small conference feel. Well, part of our solution is doing both online and on-site. And we have brought together a team to really focus on the online component, looking to replicate those discussions, the group settings that we have on-site at DLAC and being able to do those online. 
I've sat in on many online conferences. Gene, you probably have as well. Indeed. Some have been very good. Quite a few, I would say, have been fairly mediocre. You know, a lot of them feel like a bunch of webinars in a row. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do webinars too, right? But I feel like an online conference should be a little bit more. So what we're looking to do is build in a lot of networking opportunities, build in a lot of sessions using breakout rooms so that we're facilitating those discussions. And what we're also planning to do is live stream some of the sessions out of Austin. So everybody that is taking part in DLAC online is going to feel like, okay, I'm part of an online conference that has people from around the country, probably from around the world. And we're tied into this thing that's happening on site in Austin as well, with the ability for them to be watching, to be listening, to be able to post comments and questions and be an interactive part of what's happening in Austin. So all those are elements that we're planning and we believe will be part of all future DLACs as well. It's very exciting, John. I do want to shift gears for a moment here and talk about a national opportunity that I know you were very directly involved in. I know that you were invited to join with technology and education leaders for a conversation with the Biden-Harris administration, particularly their education transition team, to discuss the new administration's priorities in education. I wonder if you would share with our audience how that opportunity came to be and how you involved the Digital Learning Collaborative to gain insights from the broader membership. Gene, earlier you asked me how the DLC is growing and how we're getting the word out. And I said, I don't know. And this is a perfect example of that. I got an email from the transition team. They don't bother saying, here's where we found out about you. They just say, hey, can you join this discussion? And of course, I was more than happy to do so. And to this day, I don't know how they found us. What I do know, though, is that this was an hour-long conversation with education technology leaders from a variety of sectors, some NGOs, some state agencies, some companies. They were all very, very smart. They knew the field incredibly well. It was a fantastic conversation. I felt, though, that I was able to bring something to that conversation because I was directly reflecting the commentary of all of our members. Because when that request came in, I posted to all our members and said, hey, we've been invited to have this conversation. Let me know what you think are the key issues that the Biden-Harris administration should be watching out for. So I found that I was making comments on this call, which to be honest, I wasn't even familiar with some of these issues, certainly not as deeply, because we had several members raise a number of issues, certainly some I was familiar with, some I was not. Just to give you one example, we got into a whole discussion on the transition team about the way that E-rate funding has been used historically, how it's been limited in some ways, and how it might be expanded to meet the needs of more students and more schools. This is not an area that I'm familiar with very much at all. It was something that was raised by several of our members, and therefore I raised it on that call. It was so interesting to me because that was just one issue that really resonated on the call because what I realized is that even though this was a key issue for our members, it wasn't an issue that a lot of folks on the call were aware of. They were a bit more similar to me in one sense. They didn't even know that this was something that the folks on the ground were really struggling with. And so again, when I was able to raise it because of the input from our members, it resonated well. I see this as a perfect example of how the DLC membership is able to come together and how we're able to amplify the voices of educators to make sure, in this case, the folks in the White House, the folks at the Federal Department of Education have a direct line 
to the educators who are in schools and district central offices. So, John, certainly I know that you had solicited that input from the members of the Digital Learning Collaborative so that we could have some influence and input on the conversation as well. Can you share with our audience what others outside of the Digital Learning Collaborative were sharing as they talked with the education transition team? There was a lot of focus on issues of equity and access. And certainly that's been a focus of DLC members as well. I think it's a focus of lots of people and organizations and appropriately so. Certainly there's the equity issues that have, I think in a lot of ways, moved front and center in this country. Seems to me that a lot of that has happened since the murder of George Floyd. And that's really focused so much attention on all sorts of inequities. And I think the flip side of that is the school closings related to the pandemic have focused a spotlight on the extent to which schools play such an important role beyond academics with so many students. So for instance, within both the the Resilient School Project schools and other DLC members, when the pandemic hit and schools were initially closed, back in almost a year ago, March of 2020, right? In those early days, there were some articles, there were some policy people being quoted around issues like, are we going to have state assessments this year, right? Every time I would ask that question of an educator, the answer would be something along the lines of, I'm trying to figure out how to feed our students right now. State assessments are like a fifth order question, if not further down the line. We have to make sure that students are fed because so many of the folks that we work with are in districts that have many students who qualify for free and reduced lunch. They have to think about SEL issues, the emotional and mental health of their students. They have to think about how to connect with students, make sure that teachers were connecting with students. We've heard from district leaders and school leaders and teachers who were going to individual houses, but they weren't hearing from their students. So they were going and knocking on doors to find out where those students are. What could they do to connect. These are all the things that everyone from teachers to school leaders to district leaders had to do and they stepped up and did it. And I'm hopeful that if there's a silver lining out of the pandemic, it is this realization about the broad roles that schools play in our society addressing these issues of equity and access. Back to this, the question you asked around what were the other things that were being talked about? The other one that's related, of course, is just access. So clearly during remote learning, internet access, access to a computer or other device is so central. And I think that's really been a silver lining as well. The funding that's gone in, the effort that's gone in to make sure that students do have access has been very positive. The problems haven't been solved, but I think, again, there's been a spotlight on some of those issues. And I haven't seen any data on this, but I have a pretty strong sense that access issues have gotten at least somewhat better because of the focus over the past year. Absolutely. And it's interesting, John, we've talked about this a great deal over the last year as the pandemic has unfolded. Certainly the issues that you talk about have not gone away, but we definitely have made progress in terms of how we bring awareness to them and the kinds of things that we need to do to address them as well. So I want to end our segment today to talk a little bit about silver linings, which you have started that discussion for us. And it's really a focus on how does education move forward? I'm curious about what are some of the primary concerns that you're hearing as we prepare students for school this fall? 
the key concern and challenge is the one that I referenced earlier, the idea of how do we accelerate students? How do we make sure that students who may have not responded well to remote learning are able to get caught up and then move ahead? The silver lining side of this is that one of the challenges around all sorts of flavors of digital learning over the past 20 plus years has been, can we figure out how to break down barriers of time and place in ways that still meet the letter and intent of state laws and policies around funding and accountability and things like that? And that's been a challenge. That's been a huge challenge for essentially every educator who's trying to use digital learning in the most innovative ways. I was just talking with some folks who started a charter school in a state that's not the most charter-friendly state. And they came out of the district, out of a district, and they were focused on re-engaging students. This was pre-pandemic. They were focused on re-engaging students who had dropped out of schools. And and again, this is not a very charter-friendly state, so it's not like they were going to charter schools. They mostly dropped out of education. And these folks within the district started a program to re-engage those students, bring them back in. And I'm talking, they explained to me how they had a map of where these students live around the district, right? And they explained to me also how they pretty quickly in trying to start this program ran into issues of district and state policies around what they could and could not do. For instance, a lot of these students were now working jobs, right? And so if they couldn't present some time flexibility to these students to be able to work around the jobs that they were already in, we are not going to bring a large percentage of these students back. But they ran into these problems with state and district funding and accountability and seat time policies. And so with the full support of the district, they created a charter school instead of making it a district school. That type of story is a story we've been hearing for 20 plus years. The educators who have a vision for what they want to do And where are they slowed or stymied by existing regulations that were started for some reasons, were put on the books for some reason, were well-meaning, but now are inhibiting what educators are able to do for students? The flip side of the pandemic, the silver lining to the pandemic, may be that there's lots of people from district leaders to state leaders, federal regulators as well, who are willing to take a fresh look at what do we need to clear out in terms of regulations to allow educators to do what they need to do to engage students in the best ways possible. And if that's what comes out of the next school year, and I'm hopeful that it will, I'm hopeful that the next school year will be a step in that direction, I think there is the possibility that we look back at the pandemic and feel like, that was a real turning point in a very, very positive. Notwithstanding of all, of course, all the tragedies that have happened, all the difficulties, the closing in on 500,000 deaths. You know, you, It's hard to say, hey, this has been great <laughs> because clearly it's been an awful, awful thing for so many people. But I do believe there could be a silver lining around some of these changes that may happen in education. And John, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that as we think about education in this time, There's opportunity for us to recognize what will likely remain unchanged. What are the hallmarks of education? But what can we build on? What have we learned in this last year that we can continue to grow and nurture? And then, of course, what are the things that we fundamentally need to change to create the flexibility and the response to education 
as it really scales to meet the needs of a wide variety of students as well. In our closing minutes here, John, if you would share with us any closing thoughts or words of wisdom that you would like to leave with our listeners as we move towards a post-pandemic time, really focused on ensuring that all students get the education that they deserve. The most important aspect for most students' education is the relationship they have with adults, with their teachers, with counselors, with others at their school, as well as their family and their community. I think one of the things that's become clear is that that relationship can happen at a distance. Very, very strong, very, very positive relationships can happen at a distance. And the flip side is relationships don't just grow in positive ways because a student's sitting in a classroom from eight to three, five days a week. To the extent that we can use what we've learned over the past year to think about what are the best ways to grow these relationships, to give teachers some freedom to grow these relationships, and to think about the outcomes that come from those positive relationships, I think that's going to be the key silver lining that comes out of the pandemic of this past year. That's terrific. Absolutely. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We always love to connect with you and hear your insights. So thank you for sharing with our audience. I appreciate the chance to be on with you, Jean. And Opportunity Thrive listeners, thank you for your time today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you would take just a minute of your time and share your feedback on our show by providing a review on either Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you listen. And please reach out to us with questions or comments at info.opportunitythrives.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time.